Welcome to Health After Cancer. I'm Lydia Shapira, and with me in the studio today is Al Billman. Hi, Al. Hey, Lydia. Elle and I are happy to have Dr. Paula Rausch as our guest today. Dr. Rausch is a child psychiatrist in Boston at Massachusetts General Hospital, where she's also the founder of a parent guidance program. Paula has been my friend and my go-to person for any parenting question, both for parenting my own kids, but more importantly, for giving advice to many of my patients who are going through cancer treatment while parenting young kids at home. We've also asked Paula to tell us a little bit and teach us how to come back to some cancer conversations. Perhaps some families never had them, and now as the kids are getting older, some of these topics need to be aired. So Paula, thank you and welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. We're delighted. And I know that you bring not only decades of experience, but also your personal experience as a mother and now grandmother. Is that right? That is true. One of the things that has impressed me, Paula, in working with you for 14 years at MGH together and reading your work is how much you stress the importance of open communication in families. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. You know, communication is probably one of the most important ingredients for supporting resilience. And it is sometimes very, very hard to deliver hard news. But by talking with children about what's going on around them, one really helps them to cope. It makes things less confusing. It delivers the message, as you've heard me say so many times, Lydia, if you can make it talk aboutable, then you invite uh, your child to ask you questions and you have the opportunity to weigh in and help them to make sense of what's going on around them. And that co-processing or that working together, facing challenges together, that builds life skills. I've also heard you say that it's so important to model this for children because when they become adolescents, we want them to tell us, the parents, what's going on in their lives. Absolutely. If you give your child the message that if something is too hard or might be a little upsetting, that it's okay not to share it, gosh, put on your seatbelt for their teenage years because they'll be doing things and knowing about things that they know would maybe make your hair stand on end. And those are exactly the things that you so much want them to share with you. Even if sometimes when you're hearing it, you're thinking, oh, maybe I wish I wasn't hearing it. But In all seriousness, that's really how you can keep your child safe and engaged by hearing just those hard things. I remember you also saying, Paula, that it is important to name cancer um, instead of using euphemisms. Why is that? So euphemisms are confusing, uh, in part um, when a child hears that a parent is just sick or has a lump or a bump or a boo-boo, they themselves are going to have people say to them, oh, um, are you sick today or another family member is sick and a child may be left to worry that um, every kind of illness, an ear infection or a stomach ache could be as serious as cancer or involve hospitalization or any number of other symptoms. So um, it's, it's confusing in that way and more anxiety provoking. And the other piece is that by naming something, it's probably the beginning of and such an important invitation It's a way of saying, um, this has a name, we can talk about it just like we talk about other things. And inviting children into those conversations is incredibly important. 
In my practice now that I see a lot of breast cancer survivors, I often hear women tell me that their children were too little when they were treated. They might have been babies or toddlers, preschoolers, and now many years have passed and they're fine. So why bring it up? I usually am encouraging parents to talk to their children, even when they are in quotes too little. So if your child is talking, as far as I'm concerned, and there's cancer in the family, talk about it. But it's true that how you talk about it, and when it's now five or 10 years in the past, it may seem difficult to talk about it again. And even if you did talk about it with your child at three, the conversation is going to be different at 13. So a parent could look for a natural opportunity to talk about it when they're going in for a follow-up scan, when someone on TV is talking about it, when there's a pink ribbon campaign. And say, you might not remember, or do you remember? Pull out your album if you have some photographs. And we're constantly, all of us, rewriting our autobiographies, what our life story is. Get in there as a parent and talk about the parts of your child's life that he or she may not remember so clearly. Make this part of their life so there isn't a sudden aha moment that can sometimes feel like a betrayal. Like, how could you not have told me about this? Or a child overhearing the parent telling somebody else and going, what? Like, all these other people knew that you had cancer when I was three and you never told me? The other very important lesson that you taught me, Paula, is how important it is to know the child's age and developmental age. Um, that the conversation with a seven-year-old is going to be very different from a conversation with a teenager. Can you tell us a little bit about that and where a parent may find some information or guidance about just how to have an age-appropriate conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So um, like any big conversation or anything that, that you're doing as a family, if you go on a trip or planning a trip, you might um, describe it differently for your child who's four. Um, in terms of when you uh, let your child know you're going on a trip or how you're talking about it. Um, and I use that example because um, the goal for parents is actually to be themselves when they're talking about cancer, not make it something that is talked about in a hushed tone or some way that's so different from how they talk about everything else, because that makes it seem more scary and more troubling. So I often say to parents, well, how would you talk about if you needed to have um, surgery on your ankle, or you were going on a trip. Um, think about how do you communicate about those other things so you can be really yourself with your child. And then getting back to the question you asked me, with a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a five-year-old, it may really be naming the cancer. And we often talk with kids um, and give the simple explanation that your body's made up of trillions of teeny weeny little cells that are too small to see without a microscope that are kind of like Legos. And cancer cells are mixed up Legos that don't fit together right and can't do their jobs. And all of our treatments are to get rid of those mixed up Lego-like cells. And that's the beginning of a perfectly good conversation for a child that age. And then watching for their play, making sure that they don't feel somehow that they did something that made the parent sick. So thinking about the fact that preschoolers are egocentric, they can only imagine themselves as the center of every story. And so they may feel to blame. So watch a child's play. And if you see them 
or they ask a question that suggests that they think that they were too noisy or they jumped on you or banged into you in some way and that was the cause of the cancer, you want to um, you know, clarify that and take care of those miscommunications. As kids get a little bit older into elementary school when they're all about rules, rule and facts, simple exp explanations um, are gonna be helpful. And again, asking kids what they, what they wonder about that same Lego description works pretty well for a seven, eight, and nine-year-old. And frankly, I've had many adults say to me, oh, I love that description. Um, now I understand it a little bit better myself. Um, one of the things that is central for elementary school kids is, is fairness, facts and fairness. So um, it's common for kids to say, well, it's not fair. Um, this person who isn't as nice as you didn't get sick, or this person who doesn't eat their vegetables as well as we do, um, didn't get sick, how come? And it's part of a conversation about what are the things you can control and what are the things that you can't around fairness. Um, and particularly, I think, for elementary school children, for people who are still in treatment, you really want to clarify for them what's a symptom of the treatment as compared to what's a symptom of the cancer. Grownups are confused about this often, too. Then with teenagers, it's a different conversation. So let's talk a little bit about the teenager, but now the teenager who is the patient. I'd love for Elle to tell you a little bit about her story as she's struggled and she's told her own story on this show before about, you know, this idea of who owns her cancer information since she was treated as a young child. Yeah, I'm so excited to get your perspective on this, Paula. I was diagnosed with leukemia when I was very young. I have very few memories of my cancer diagnosis and when I was actively treated. Even though my cancer story begins there, I feel like my actual experience with my cancer survivorship begins much later when I was um, an adolescent, especially a later adolescent, when I started to really look into my cancer history, understand my diagnosis, how I was treated, um, in part because I was dealing with some late effects, but also in part because I wanted to know about my future and how being treated for cancer could impact my future health. Since I was a teenager at the time, I was less interested in having open, honest conversations with my parents and instead kind of wanted to figure it out on my own. In hindsight, I recognized that talking to my parents would have been probably the best step for me to take. But because I went at it and trying to figure it out by myself, I kind of ran into a lot of roadblocks and had some frustration in trying to learn about myself and not being able to. I'm going to say I think you actually did well to go on your own uh, mm -hmm. adventure in trying to understand this. I'm sure your parents would have had a wonderful perspective and could have added to it. But um, I, I think it's a wonderful adolescent approach to want to own your experience, to take in the information, even when there are uh, barriers to getting that information, uh, and not see this experience when you're a teenager, not see it so much through your parents' eyes, but begin to see it through your own. So kudos to you <laughs> for um, for doing that as a teenager. And there are so many things that we do as teenagers that we might look back on and say, well, that was not the easiest way to get there. <laughs> um, but uh, often there's a, a lot of benefit from getting there the hardest way. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that perspective. I'm curious if you could talk about um, or give any tips on communicating 
um, especially when there's uncertainty. I think that's really common in survivorship because you know you can have all sorts of late effects from the treatments you were given, but maybe you won't. Um, so if you have any tips on just talking about topics that are kind of rooted in uncertainty. Yeah. So um, I, I think often when one asks people what's the hardest thing about any kind of treatment, it's uncertainty. And uh, it is also part of life for all of us. And I think along the way, as people are getting um, older and having more experiences, they have to begin to learn individually what are the things that help them to cope better. And there are people who want to know every possible thing that can go wrong. And that gives them a sense of, okay, um, now that I know what might be out there in the unknown, um, I feel more secure. And other people are like, hey, you know what? I'm a, I'm a need to know person. You know, if I'm not having a problem, I want to know minimally what I need to do to be safe. But beyond that, I'm not so interested. So some of it is having someone take their own pulse of um, how do they cope best? What helps them to reestablish a sense of positivity related to their own body? Cancer or any illness is a little bit of a betrayal when your body um, attacks you from within. And um, thinking about what are the things that, that help you to regain your confidence. I, I also think because we know that our bodies remember things that sometimes our minds don't. Many of the teenagers that I have known over the years who were treated before age five, um, they have body memories that, um, that they no one explained to them that they might have. And I don't know at all if this is your experience, but it has been for other people. If they get um, an illness in which they're nauseated, um, they get more anxiety because they have a body memory of having been very nauseated during treatment, but they don't necessarily make the connection. And sometimes demystifying that um, and saying, hey, even though you don't remember um, your leukemia treatment at 18 months, I'm thinking of someone in particular, your body does. And there was a lot that went on during that time. And so you're, you're feeling that, that anxiety. Sometimes um, smells also can evoke a ton of memory. One of my colleagues would tell the story that he treated someone um, in early childhood for a cancer. Uh, she saw him in the grocery store 10 or 15 years later, was so excited, ran up to him. And as soon as she got close to him, she threw up and um, she was mortified and <laughs> he felt bad too but he was so associated with nausea for her, great affection, but also nausea. It's just a reminder of all the things that go on within us that aren't necessarily in our conscious memories. Yeah, I just started reading The Body Keeps the Score and what, what you are saying is really reminding me of of everything I've, I've been reading in that book. So I'm excited to keep, keep reading it. I do yes, have- I do have one story about smell and how it kind of jogged a memory for me. When I was a senior in college, I was working as a research research assistant in CVICUs, and I had gone into a patient's room and was using an alcohol wipe to clean a device that I was using, and that smell really took me back. Um, well, it didn't really take me back, but I, I like... I had a response in my body was like, I know this smell. Um, so that was interesting. And as I continue my career in medicine, it'll be exciting maybe, um, or just kind of an experience for me to continue seeing if there are other things that jog my memory or my body's memory. 
And what a great gift to your future patients. Yes. But what better than to have a trail guide who's been there before mm-hmm. and knows these are the kind of little things that come with lived experience. And, you know, there are, there's all kinds of learning, but that learning that comes from lived experience that's really in the details, the stuff that helps somebody to know that you really get it, it's so valuable. Mm-hmm. Your patients are lucky. Thank you. We've also heard from Elle's mom on this show. And we've heard from other parents who talk about the trauma that they experienced when they had to hold a child for down for a painful procedure, or perhaps the guilt and sorrow they experienced for, about having to be away from their other children while they devoted, you know, year, often years of their life to really being at the side of a child being treated. Can you talk a little bit about what advice we can offer these parent survivors? So I think just to acknowledge um, what an incredibly difficult challenge they have. It's, it's, you know, to be, it's like a Sophie's choice, you know, being pulled in multiple uh, directions and feeling regret in, in not being able to be in two places or three places at once. Uh, I think the data on PTSD for parents that walk into medical environments and see their child in an ICU is um, more, uh, the PTSD rates are higher than they are um, for people that have served in Afghanistan, just to sort of place in context how uh, traumatic it is. It's, it is important for all of us on the doctor side or the uh, medical side to really prepare parents when they walk in and see something for the first time. Similarly, siblings. So um, I often say to the family members, take your cell phone and take a picture of what the person looks like. Look at it small on a device. Prepare yourself so that there's not so much shock. Shock is one of those things that's never good for integrating things. And then I, you know, I would say the same thing to parents that I say to everybody. Um, talking about it is so important. It's really important for the kids at home to know that if they were the one that was sick, that the parent would be um, doing the same thing with them. It's not that they um, that a parent prefers the child who's sick. It's that this is what we do when we love each other and one uh, one member of our family is sick. And not being angry at the child at home who feels jealous of the child who's sick. It's natural if you're, if the child who's sick is getting gifts and time and attention, it's important as a parent to say, you know what, your sister is so lucky that she's getting this and this and this and that we're having this special time. She's not lucky that she's getting needle sticks and medicine that makes her feel sick and tired. But absolutely, I can understand why you feel upset about it. Can you give us some more tips about how we can keep uh, the family life as normal as possible, even when a sibling is being treated or in the case that a parent is being treated and needs to be absent from the family dinner or just can't stand being around food? For all families, having regular routines and schedules are so helpful. Rituals also are great if every Sunday morning is pancake morning or um, Monday night is pizza night. Um, The beauty of having regularity when things are uncertain The things that you can count on are even nicer. Also, when someone is tired, when emotionally they're drained, you can sort of push through and just choice making takes a lot of energy. So um, trying to keep those daily schedules and weekly routines in place and simplifying things. 
I often talked with parents about saying, okay, you know, what are the four or five things that your kids will eat? This is not a time to be um, Rachel Ray in 365 days and 365 meals. Um, uh, Monday can be pizza, Tuesday's noodles, you know, Wednesday's chicken, Thursday is uh, breakfast for dinner, and Friday is takeout. Not having to make those decisions and having kids know what's coming next helps. And there's an age part of it too. So for the very youngest kids, meals and sleep time and schedules, who's going to be there at bedtime and when you wake up, those are things that um, really matter to the very youngest kids. For elementary school things, think about their activities, being prepared for going to school. You really want to have the money for the school field trip or the magic markers that you need for a particular day. If things are, are hard at home, you don't want school to be a place where a grade schooler doesn't have what they need. And so many of our kids are so um, busy with after-school activities. Better to do fewer things, but do them consistently than to do a little bit of a lot of things. And then for teenagers, really over and over again, um, helping them to be a consultant to you as a parent about what would be helpful to them. What, what do we not understand about what a teenager's experience is? Let them speak for themselves. Elle, do you remember talking about your cancer with your siblings or any family discussions or how the cancer impacted your life growing up? I don't really remember having any specific conversations with my sisters. I have two sisters, um, an older and a younger. Um, the youngest was six months, three months when I was diagnosed, and then the oldest was around five. Um, so my older sister, I am sure, has more memories. Um, no, we've never really had a formal conversation. It may be something that we would benefit from. Um, I, I've been fortunate to speak with other childhood cancer survivors who are adults now, and they've shared that they still feel some tension with their siblings years and years later that are kind of rooted in their cancer diagnosis and kind of how siblings were treated when they were being treated for cancer. So I'm curious to hear if you have any recommendations for speaking to your siblings or having a family talk about a cancer experience when it's so far removed, like maybe 15, 20 years. So, uh, I, you know, if you ask me, there's probably not any conversation that you would ask me, what do you think about having that one? That I'd say, oh, no, no, don't have that conversation. Sure. So um, it sounds like a great idea to me. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're constantly reprocessing um, old experiences. And particularly where you think about your older sister, who was five, it's hard to know how she um, remembers um, that time, but she might be quite surprised um, if together with your parents, uh, she heard actually um, the logistics of what went on during that time. It's often kids have laid it down as memory, but didn't realize that actually the hospitalizations were three weeks apart, or um, there was a six month period where there wasn't one. They may remember that the hospitalizations were all the time, or they never happened during a particular time. It is helpful just to get the facts laid down, and they become kind of a, a foundation for then all the emotions that go on around it. And the opportunity as a parent or, um, you know, as an adult yourself, and now going into, into the field of medicine, um, to say, 
gee, when you look back on it, is there anything that you wished had been different? That process of inviting somebody to share their individual perspective, mm -hmm. cancer is a family illness mm -hmm. in the sense that everybody in the family um, is affected by it, just each person in their own individual way. Mm -hmm. And the process of having that conversation validates the experience of both your sisters, mm -hmm. the one who was too little to remember completely, but was born into a time when there was a major stressor in the family, and your older sister, who may have um, sort of uh, disjointed memories of the time because she was still pretty young. So Paula, where can people go to find information if they're experiencing these kinds of situations where somebody in the family is so desperately ill? So um, at any individual cancer center, there should be support people, a social worker, um, a few programs, not as many as I would wish, have a parenting program the way we do at the Mass General. Um, I would invite people to go to our website, um, which is mghpact.org. There's about 100 pages of, of um, targeted information for, for parents. Cancer.net has information. And I, I think there's there's also um, great benefit in finding a peer group. Um, there's something really special about talking to other people who've had the same experience. And even those of us that work in a helping profession the way I do as a child psychiatrist, I think some of the smartest things that I'm able to share with parents, I learned from a different parent. So I think of myself as sort of the carrier of a, uh, a discontinuous group <laughs> that I'm bringing information from different people to the next person, because it, they may not have a next door neighbor or someone in their class or someone in their parents group who has had the same experience. And so um, at least it's not quite the same as talking to another survivor, but um, at least I can share some of the wisdom that's been shared with me. Paula, help us understand what advice to give parents who are sort of debating about whether or not to talk to their child's teacher or the school authorities about something going on at home, something related to cancer. How should parents interact with schools? So I think it's important to let teachers know always um, whether it's a preschool or elementary school, um, middle school and high school, it's a little bit harder because there may not be one teacher to connect with, um, but figuring out who the right point person is, is important. Um, and then letting the school know that uh, as a parent, one wants to know how one's child is doing, but also you want school to be a bit of an oasis so that you don't want people coming up to to the child and saying, oh, how are you? Or how's your mom during the day? You want school to be the fun place and the child center place that it always was. But if a child wants to go to a teacher, kids need to know who can I talk to if I'm feeling upset. So um, opening that conversation is also um, important to have a conversation with the school about what an individual family wants to have shared more broadly or not. I think, um, Sometimes uh, school systems may have make the error of kindness of sharing information more broadly than a family would choose to have it shared. So um, a conversation about general information and a conversation about what's what's happening at home and um, encouraging the school to keep things as normal as possible um, and let parents know if they're noticing anything of concern. So what are some of the most common questions that parents ask you? 
one of the common questions is, is this normal? And very often, uh, 90% of the time, I would say it's normal. Some of the content that parents may be seeing, for example, in their, in their child's play may have integrated um, uh, aspects of cancer and cancer care into the play, but it's, it's very normal. And then the question is, um, when should I be worried or should I be worried? And I would say if, if a parent is worried, I think parents know a lot about their own children. They see them over across time. Um, go talk to your pediatrician first. Check in with your child's teacher. Talk to a counselor. But don't be afraid to ask, should you be worried? I, I don't know. What are the things that make me worried? Certainly in older kids when they are um, talking about hurting themselves or um, feeling uh hopeless, they stop doing things with friends, their appetite changes, sleep changes, all of those things would be worrying. I, I sometimes say to parents, the time to seek help is when you're noticing something in your child that would worry you whether or not you have cancer or whether or not one of your other children has cancer. Um, trust your intuition. If you're worried, uh, ask for help, get a consultation from uh, one of the one of the available adults in your life. Well, Paula, I can't begin to tell you how grateful we are for your wisdom, your time. Um, I just love talking with you. And I just remember that all of us used to go to you for parenting advice for our own families and for our patients. And thank you for everything you do. Thank you so much. Paula, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was wonderful for me to get to listen to you and Lydia talk about parenting and also ask you some questions about how I processed my um, cancer history as a young adult and talked about it with my parents as well as my siblings. To our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. As a reminder, you can find more information on the podcast at www.healthaftercancer.com. If you enjoyed listening to us today, Please rate, follow, and subscribe to Health After Cancer wherever you listen to podcasts.